What's up, everybody? It's Ryan Douglas, and you are listening to Blacklight Pod. I want to say thank you to everybody who listened to the first episode. We got a lot of good reception, and I super appreciate everybody who shared that and tuned in. Um, I'm really excited to be back for another episode with another friend of mine, and today we're going to be talking about taking risks. Terry J. Benson is a writer who currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He writes fiction for adults, young adults, and children, which also means he spends a lot of time holed up in coffee shops. He's self-published several contemporary titles for adults, which can be found on Amazon in paperback and Kindle formats. Terry is represented by Patrice Caldwell of Howard Moreham Literary Agency. Thank you for joining me, Terry. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Um, it's really an honor to be here today. I listened to the first episode, which was amazing, and I loved it. So it really is an honor to be on your second episode today. Thank you so much. I'm sure I'm really glad that you liked it, and I'm happy to have you here. Um, I think what we have in common as writers is that we both write uh, YA and that we're interested in kind of um, crossing over to the adult genres. And I think that there are things that are written over or lied about in the genre concerning what teens have access to and especially what teens like us would have access to um, as black teens or gay black teens, which is to say I want to talk about the risk that we have to take in our writing as black gay men to accurately represent ourselves and our experiences. But I also want to talk about risk taking in general in terms of market and what we're expected to put into into the market versus what is authentic and true and how those things um, tie into each other or conflict with each other. So I really enjoy your projects that I've read. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not afraid to um, think outside of the box and outside mm-hmm. of the parameters of what we see uh, in young adult or in the publishing market. And I want to let you talk about those. But first, I want to talk about the market. And I want to know something that you feel is missing or that you felt was missing when you were growing up reading books in terms of what was too risky to put on the page, whether it meant you would piss off Christian moms or the clean YAKK. My favorite people. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. They're, I love them. Oh my gosh. So, um, so when you, th- when you think about adding risk to the canon, that is important, but overlooked. What's, what are some things that come to mind? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think about when I was a kid and um, when I was a horny teenager, mm-hmm. as most teenagers are mm-hmm. um, naturally, um, the kids around me um, in school every day talked about sex and they talked about drugs and I got to hear about all the sex capades and things from the weekend. Yeah. And I was sheltered as a kid and there was nowhere for me to sort of get answers to my questions. And my mom's response was always, you don't need to worry about that right now. So I had to consume the knowledge any way that I could get it. Um, so, you know, that always isn't in the most savory of places. For example, I was curious about sex. So what do I do? I watched porn, mm-hmm. too. And that was how I got my sex education. Yeah. And so I also I read a lot as a kid, but there were one, there were no books that um showed a black gay male's perspective um, as a, a hero or or a protagonist or anything. So there were no stories for me with characters that identif- that I could identify with, especially at a time when I was trying to really figure out who I was. Yeah. And I feel like if there were 
um, stories that were truthful about, you know, sex and sexuality and things that, you know, when people were talking about things, I was, I was exposed to things that I would have, you know, had a better foundation to actually be able to deal with it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's, um, people tend to forget that we're, when we're writing, we are writing to assist young people and be there for young people. When we're writing young adult, which sometimes means introducing them to things that they might not be aware of or that they might not they might not be ready for um, at the time but that they need uh, for the for the next years going into their lives and so they're not knocked over the head by things or, or like yeah. thrown into things where they don't really know how to cope with situations and when you have mm-hmm. characters who are going through these things who they can see and they say okay well this is how this character went through it this is how they came out of the other side they're able to to see um, what that looks like uh, when it approaches them in, in the real world. Yeah, and as an adult, looking back, I can say um, it doesn't do our kids a service to censor them because mm-hmm. they are going to consume the content however they need to, um, just like I did. Yeah. Um, so I was always a voracious reader as a kid, and um, my mom always supported me reading. I used to always do um the little summer reading club that would give me the little Pizza Hut coupons for the personal pan mm-hmm. pizza. Um, oh, that personal yeah. pan? Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Girl, it's that's a slap. Slap. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I used to collect my little personal pan pizzas. And, um, but, uh, like, like I said, there was nothing that really explored, like, what I was curious about. And so, like, like I said, my mom never really censored me when it came to reading. Mm-hmm. You know, she always supported me reading whatever I wanted to read as long as I was reading, you know. And, yeah. you know, God bless black women. You know, thank you for. My, right. My grandma used to give me, um, she used to give me, like, biographies to read mm-hmm. of, like, doctors and, and lawyers and stuff like just read that just read something and I was like <laughs> mm-hmm. how am I supposed to read this grandma yeah so my mom definitely always supported me reading she never really censored me so what I did was as a little fast ass teenager I found out that if I read adult I could read about things that I was curious about like the sex and the drugs and everything else and so I found Eric Jerome Dickey, who wrote, who's a fabulous um, Black author, and but also writes very explicitly about sex. And because I was curious, I would, I got into him as a teenager. And, you know, my mom would always buy the books and she never questioned it. And so, you know, if, you know, Eric Jerome Dickey's books, while they're great, they're not really great as an instructional tool for a teenager. Yeah. Um, so I would it, it would have been more beneficial to me to be able to read, you know, things in a, a YA setting that, you know, really pertain to my life. Because, you know, as a 14, 15 year old, I didn't really know anything about like a woman cheating on her husband with like yeah. the mailman. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it just would have, the context would have been better. And then also from an adult perspective. I would think that you would want to be able to control how your kids consume that information because mm-hmm. it's really important. And so um, this is a good segue to our next, uh, to the next thing that I wanted to talk about. New adult. There's this ongoing debate about whether it's time to reintroduce the genre with a new perspective or a reevaluation of what new adult is. For everyone who doesn't know, um, new adult had a moment in the industry, which was a very short moment because the stories became pretty much hypersexualized to the point where the genre wasn't really taken seriously anymore. And now everyone's saying that it's dead. 
Um, but there are, well, not everyone, but gatekeepers are essentially saying that it's dead. I know when I first came into the industry, um, and I presented a, a new adult story to my agent, she was like, you know, they're not really checking for these stories anymore. It's, it's pretty much dead. And now, um, there are a lot of authors and readers who are saying that it's important. It should, it should return to market. And I personally think it's really important as somebody who's now going through his mid twenties and can look back and see where I really needed assistance, um, in, in those reckless times, uh, that I had, cause I'm a pretty reckless kind of person. Um, and I couldn't really get those things from YA books, but I also couldn't get them from stories about like, you know, the, the wife cheating with the mailman or, mm-hmm. or what have you, um, <laughs> uh, divorce and stuff like that. Um, but it seems like publishing kind of insists on that gap and it's actually like, I see that as harmful mm-hmm. um, because I really think that like it's very jarring to to come from um, teenhood into the adult world. All the rules are different. Absolutely. So um, I want to know how you feel about new adult and like should we carve out a space for it? So I absolutely think that we need new adult. I think um, we need to rebrand it, reestablish it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think new adult should span all of the same you know, categories and genres that we explore in both young adult as well as adult. And um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the the period of transitioning from your teen to, you know, um, your adult years in those early 20s, that's a very formative and also very confusing time. Yeah. But it would help to be able to have stories that you can relate to. Um, but, you know, I think, and, and this is just my opinion, but I think I understand why we're struggling to establish the new adult market mm-hmm. is because effectively establishing a new market can be an Olympian task, but it's not impossible, right? It's just, it's going to take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And not only aside from a lot of work, it also is going to take a lot of risk. Um, yeah. And um, people are naturally risk averse, especially yeah. in a business setting, especially in publishing. And, and especially in, a, in um, publishing for kids. Exactly. Because you know, they're yeah. trying to shape the future. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at it from a business standpoint, um, that is it's sort of the reasoning, uh, well, part of the reasoning behind comps. Um, because that allows us to uh, sort of de-risk titles if we can comp them to something that has mm-hmm. already been financially successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue with new adult is there's no comps. So for us to effectively establish that market, we're going to have to take really big risks yeah, and put yeah. books out that are new and fresh that we don't have anything to comp to. And yeah. that can be really scary. And I can understand why um, there's a pushback. Not that it's justified, but I can understand where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, I was thinking about this on the way over and um, I started thinking about, you know, Steve Jobs in the iPhone. Right. It was the iPhone was a very revolutionary piece of technology when it came out. Right. But there was nothing to compare it to at the time. You know, there were cell phones, but there was nothing that did what the iPhone did. So, you know, he took a huge risk by proposing that idea and by allowing his company to put it out. The iPhone could have been a radical success like it was, but it also could have been a complete flop. Yeah. But if you never take the risk, you never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I think what publishing needs to do is we need to come together and decide how we're going to manage that risk and how we're going to do the work to make it happen. I personally don't feel like it will flop if we do our due diligence and give it the, the effort that we need and be open to taking risks. 
which is to me is very important to you know just like writing in general and sort of my cause as a writer it's always very important for me to push the boundaries and continue yeah. to stay true you know to myself and to like growth and development and education it seems like everybody in, in this current climate it seems like everybody's trying to chase after what was done well and trying mm -hmm. to kind of replicate that rather than do something different and kind of mm -hmm. roll the dice do you think mm -hmm. that that is part of it too i absolutely agree with that yeah um i, I think that i wouldn't say that you know there no one's taking risks because mm -hmm. you know we do get a few like really good things that actually like get through but i do think as a whole we could do a lot more work to you know, diversify what we're putting out and to take more risks and to give us that broader range of stories. And I feel like by not doing that, we're really doing the teens and the children who are relying on us to like build these worlds for them and tell them these stories. We're doing them a great disservice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so I want to ask you uh, about what you write and how you sort of manage to incorporate riskier topics that I guess the market doesn't show that it's necessarily ready to address. And so there, there isn't really a blueprint for us. So mm -hmm. I don't know how you work around that and how much you consider market and um, how you uh, take risks in spite of what I guess the market is saying that you should do. Mm -hmm. So I think what I try to do in, in terms of the market is I sort of listen to the market and take, I definitely take that into consideration, but when it comes to the heart of my story, I definitely try to stick to my brand, which is, you know, pushing boundaries and writing outside of the box and outside of the confines. And it's not always easy. Um, I've definitely over the years gotten a lot of pushback for trying to do things that are, you know, not typical in the young adult market. Mm -hmm. And um, definitely everything that I write about, um, I definitely have a black queer leads. Um, strong Black women. We have, especially um, in Queen, which is Game of Thrones meets American Horror Story Coven. Yes, <laughs> give it to us. Give it to us. So that that book surrounds a cast of very different, morally gray characters, and it was important for me with that project to show the dynamic range of Black women and Black queer people, mm -hmm. because you know I think you know the the formula tells us that you know, black queer people have to be good and they have to, you know, follow like a certain formula to be acceptable. But like we're, so I feel like that's so limiting because we cover so, so, so much of a broader spectrum, right? So we can be anything from the heroine all the way to the villain and everything in between. And so with all of my stories, I try to make sure that I show that. Um, also in Queen, I wanted to touch on the topic of moral ambiguity, mm -hmm. which is something that I think is very interesting because, you know, it's not good and evil. You know, it's, it's, it's very gray. Yeah. And um, in Queen, we see the protagonists as well as the villains, you know, doing things that could be considered morally gray. And so it leaves you asking yourself, well, if I was put in this situation, what would I do mm -hmm. and how would I respond? And would that be okay? And I think those are the stories and those are the messages that I think it's important for teens to be able to see. And not only that, but be able to see from a perspective of a character who they can identify with. Mm -hmm. Also in A Dragon's Reverie, which is what I call my gay dragons. So yes, <laughs> we love A Dragon's Reverie. 
<laughs> we love the gay dragons. <laughs> yeah, so if, for anyone who's following my following me on Twitter, you're well aware of um, my gay dragons because I talk about them a lot. Um, <laughs> that one was inspired by the cap- captive prince and the last unicorn. And, you know, that, that project was one that was very special for me. Um, it was important for me for A Dragon's Reverie to show a really gritty view of sexuality and domestic abuse and toxic masculinity and how it affects individual people as well as society as a whole. And I wanted to stay true to that. And as a result, um, it has a lot of scenes and a lot of things that, you know, some people might consider too much, but it's also very real and very authentic. And, And then I think about when I'm writing these things, how would teenage me react to reading this and what would they get from that? So, you know, I do push boundaries, but I push boundaries very purposefully. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't just do it for shock value. Mm You know, there's a message and there's a reason. Um, For example, in A Dragon's Reverie, the main character, Reverie, is very promiscuous. And the reason that he is promiscuous is because I want to you know, tell a story about sex positivity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was going through things. And, you know, when someone's going through something, you know, sometimes they might lash out in a different way, or some people might just enjoy sex. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, as long as you're being safe and you're being responsible. And um, one thing that was very important for me is when, um, and this might be a little bit of a spoiler, but not really, um, when Reverie meets his love interest, they don't have sex in the first book. And that's very contradictory to what someone might think when they initially um, come into contact with Reverie's character, because in the first chapter, he has a hookup with a random guy he meets at a club. Mm-hmm. Sex to him is something that is, you know, it's, it's, it's not just black or white. You know, it, it's a very gray space. And it has different meanings for him. He can have sex with someone and it absolutely means nothing. Mm-hmm. But he can have sex with someone who he has genuine feelings for. And that like sexual act can mean something very important. You're, you're looking at um, sex in a very nuanced way. And I think that's important because, you know, when, when you say sex, it, the interpretation of what that means kind of is dependent on like the ears that it's falling on. Like mm-hmm. some people might hear sex and think, oh, it's porn. And some mm-hmm. people might hear it and think, you know, okay, well, you have a relationship and you're in that context and two two people who are loving each other and you can be promiscuous or you can mm-hmm. be going through that phase. And still, um, when you find someone where you're feeling like a sense of genuine belonging or, or like someone that you can take things to a more serious place with that that completely changes um the the context of sex and i think mm-hmm. that's an important thing for young people to see to like know that that is real yeah i think it's really important for everybody to have a whole phase um, uh, I, yeah <laughs> i always tell everybody go ahead while you're young as long as you're being safe yeah and responsible yeah go ahead and have your whole phase yeah. you know sow your oats because one day you're gonna settle down right and you need to know that the person you settle down with is who you really want to be with option you know yeah. like so you have to know your options there's over three billion men in the world there's how can you just sample one or two and know that you want to settle <laughs> down know, yeah. i'm just saying I'll be wanting the whole palette. You know me. I'll be wanting the whole palette. Um, <laughs> that is uh, really, really uh, an important thing to to look at. And I think there's so much about sex that we need to look at because it's mm-hmm. so human and so real. And then you look at the books, and it's like barely even there. 
Uh, and I also write that way too. It's where I look, I think about myself and I think about what I needed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you don't do that, you're kind of betraying yourself, but you're also betraying other people who need that as well. Exactly. Um, or this like corporation that is telling you, this is when you're supposed to do things. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, we're artists. We're supposed to write and express as we feel, like mm -hmm. as it occurs to us. Yeah. And like, also I want to be clear. I don't think that all books should have sex. I, right. I think that there should be a, a spectrum. Like there should be, it's okay to have um, a fade to black. Mm -hmm. when um, sexy time is about to happen. We don't always have to have the, the, the graphic right. detail. Yeah. You know, because like, if it's not purposeful, then why is it there? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. If so it, like, it should be revealing something about the character or the mm -hmm. plot or like doing something in the narrative for sure. I think the narrative always should come first. Yeah, and teens should be able to choose. Like there are some teens, and I completely, absolutely respect that. If you don't want to read it, yeah. You should be able to choose. Yeah, definitely. You know? But if you are curious and you want to know, you should also be able to You should to have things that, that are available. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and the way that I write, I always try to keep that in mind. And, you know, when I, when I write about sex, it's not pornographic. It's also, mm -hmm. it's also I write with the audience in mind. And it's mm -hmm. very respectful. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, sometimes, like, the way that I write is I just write it all out. And sometimes I have to pull it back, mm -hmm. and you know, because you've read some things, yeah. you've been like, "Come on now." I was like, you said what was on the roof of the car? And I was like, oh, "Okay, all right." Oh my God. But I love, I just love that you go there, though. Mm -hmm. I love that you do it, you know. And I think that's really important, like especially for anybody who's listening, who's like thinking about, okay, I'm trying to like get an agent, or I'm trying to be, I'm trying to get an editor, I'm on sub or whatever agents and editors like when authors take risks and it's their job to say okay this is too much or that's too much it's their job to moderate artists as we come into the market and tell us what is standard and okay and like to to to, to tweak that so i think that as authors we should definitely be be taking the kinds of risks um, that you take, which is, this is a great lead into our, um, what I want to talk about next, which is, um, that you have been recently lifted out of the query trenches. Yes, thank, Woo! You. <laughs> thank God. Oh my God. <laughs> I remember I was, I remember when you were going through that. So, um, <laughs> congratulations on you. your wonderful agent. And also, I want to thank know, you for letting me cry in your inbox. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, no, cause I understand I was querying for, 10 years or so pushing mm -hmm. for a dream that you don't know is going to happen and it takes so much faith and self-discipline so i do want to hear about um what that journey was like for you and, and any advice that you would give to fellow black gay men or just writers in general who are still in the query trenches trying to get an agent cool absolutely so i was in the query trenches for eight years Ooh, child. right <laughs> the ghetto. The, child, the ghetto. <laughs> we used to something a little bit different. <laughs> no, but um, it, it was a good time. I will say that while it took eight years, I understand why it took eight years. Uh, yeah, it's like I, it took me eight years to learn what I needed to learn to be able to like help myself get out of the trenches. Um, but I signed with Patrice this past fall which has been amazing and she's absolutely amazing. And um, one of the things that made me want to sign with her um, that initially like uh, made me love her was that 
she said that she understood the heart of my story. And if she didn't, she wanted to understand it. And that while she would help me make my story better, she would never try to force me to change the heart of my story. There it is. And that to me was so important as someone who wants to like push the boundaries and take risks and understand why I want to do that. That like meant everything to me. So, um, not only that, but also she was the first person to actually take a chance on me and believe in me. And um, and she's a black woman once again. Mm-hmm. Thank God for black women. Yes, <laughs> I definitely. I mean, my editor is a black woman, and and that's been so fundamental to how comfortable I feel approaching the cultural aspects of my work, and how comfortable I feel going back towards myself rather towards like what is expected of me. And I want to say that. You know, A Dragon's Reverie was my ninth full-length manuscript, and Queen was my eighth. And when I was going along that journey, you know, when you keep trying and you try so hard and you revise, I mean, like one manuscript I revised for like three years. And I hired editors, and I was just trying to do everything possible, you know, to get out of the query trenches, you know, but I kept going. And I think one thing that was really helpful for me was knowing when to shelve a project and to move on to something else. Um, And there was one particular project I was working on, and I just couldn't make headway on it. And I was like, maybe because you're trying to fix something that you didn't really know what you were doing when you wrote it. So Mm. I take everything that you've learned and start something fresh. Right, right. And also one thing that helped me is I'm very super analytical by nature. So every time I would have to show a manuscript, I would go back and I would review all of my feedback and all of my critiques. And then I would go and I would study craft and sort of try to analyze you know what I did wrong and how I can improve and I would improve and then I would write a new story and I would try again and um, even now I'm constantly like the way that I approach writing is um, from the manner of continual improvement which is like what I do for my day job Um, but every time that I have an iteration of a manuscript I try to learn and get better and my goal is to try to never get the same feedback more than once on a particular major issue so I try to incorporate the things that people tell me, learn, and never make that mistake again if I can. Um, and I would say that looking back over my journey, my advice for um, Black, gay, queer, or just Black authors, or just anyone in general, um, is to first be humble and open to accepting critique and challenge from people. Yes. That is very important. Very crucial. Um, yeah, no matter how good you are, how good you think you are. No matter how good you think you is. <laughs> right? Always have something to learn. Even yeah. authors who are published always have something new to learn because yeah. it's an ongoing exploration. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Even authors who are bestsellers always have things to learn. There's never a point where you're going to know every single thing. Yeah, because there's know. never a point where a book can be perfect. Exactly. They're, they're kind of just... Um, abandoned when you feel like they're good enough mm-hmm. <laughs> and they've beaten like that's good enough like, yeah they've the beaten girl. you up enough times <laughs> to where you're just like okay i'm done with this my second piece of advice is you know trust your heart and the heart of your story so mm-hmm. while it's good to be humble and open to accepting challenge um all feedback isn't good feedback um and i think the yeah. way that you choose what's good and what's not is you have to really know the heart of your story. And that's something that you have to stick to. And if feedback is trying to get you to change the heart of your story, then that's how you know that it's not good feedback. Yeah. 
Um, and the last thing would be to lift as you climb. Um, when I yes. <laughs> when I started writing, I reached out to some people to just get advice and to, to sort of help me navigate, and they weren't very nice. Um, so mm. now I try to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so I mean, real talk, it happens to everybody. It, so especially in this in this book Twitter economy, mm-hmm. as I like to say, yes. Yeah. So you know, I just remember when how I was when I was first starting out, and I was hungry, and I was curious, and I was kind of by myself, and you know, some people weren't very nice to me, and it was a while before I developed a community, and I was like. As long as someone has the drive and the motivation and they're willing to work hard, I want to help them and I want to do what I can to make sure no one else has to deal with what I had to deal with. So, yes. and I always tell people whenever like I help them do something and they're like, oh, I'm so grateful. And I'm just like, you know, you're welcome. But just do me one thing. If you are really grateful, you're appreciated. Just be kind to someone who's coming. Mm-hmm. Pass it on. And yeah. help them. I definitely. And I feel like I love having you in my life because I feel like that's your philosophy um, as a friend as well. Your your like your positive impact um creates a chain reaction. And we've seen the practical ways that, that happens. Um <laughs> thank you for those tips. I think all of those tips are really important. Um I do want to ask you for music recommendations uh so that we can uh get our get our creative juices flowing or just mm-hmm. pop our asses in the mirror. I mean whatever you <laughs> just just give us a music rec. So the first would be The Night King by Ramin Jawadi, okay. who is my absolute favorite composer. Um, it is a beautiful song from Game of Thrones. I listen to it a million times. I was going to say, The Night King, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> yeah, I love that song. I write to it. It's amazing. I sleep to it. It's amazing. Um, the second would be Just Might Be a Ho by Summer Walker. I'm dead. <laughs> I mean, I love it. And I think it's so appropriate because we're talking about taking risks. Wait, is that on her um album? Yeah, it's not over it. Oh really? Mm-hmm. I don't. Okay, I I'm not gonna say. Yeah. I, I liked a few. I liked a few from the album. Fun Girl mm-hmm. is really good, but that's kind of a sad bitch. <laughs> I remember what you told me. <laughs> like that's when I was first really impressed by Summer Walker, mm-hmm. um, because she did that. Yeah, the, the album voice, is amazing. It's a good album. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me Thank about you. taking risks and new adult and. This has been a very productive conversation, and I appreciate you coming over to have it with me. Follow Terry on Twitter. You can say your handles. Uh, it's at Terry J. Bitten on Twitter and on Instagram at Ice Cream Vice Lord. Ice Cream Vice Lord. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Blacklight. If you want to follow Terry on Twitter, it's at Terry J. Benton on Twitter and at Ice Cream Vice Lord on Instagram. If you want to follow Blacklight Pod, it's at Blacklight Pod on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow me, I'm at Ryan Douglas W on Twitter and at Ryan Douglas Writer on Instagram. If you want to be on Blacklight Pod, be sure to send me an email at Ryan Douglas W at gmail.com with a proposal for what you want to talk about and who you are. I'm still trying to line up guests for this first season here so if you are a black queer person working in publishing or film or media in some capacity and you have something to talk about uh, that you think would be of value to the listening audience i would really appreciate hearing from you and yeah thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day